Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. There's a quite strongly held belief amongst sea anglers, both boat and shore, that distance out and increased water depth automatically equate to catching more fish. And in some cases that may well be true, but not every time. That said, on the shore fishing scene you really do need to have distance casting as a weapon in your armoury, even if you don't always use it, and this has led to the ongoing development not only of suitable hand tackle and aerodynamically streamlined terminal rigs, but also of casting techniques to get those few extra yards, which might just make all the difference. Here in the UK, the first person to bring the link between improved distance casting and increased catches to the general public's awareness was a chap named Les Moncrief, who successfully and regularly used it for targeting big cod from the beach at Dungeness. All black and white images of Les with piles of good cod remain just as evocative today as they were back in the 1960s, possibly even more so given the decline in numbers of bigger fish taken from the shore these days. In the post-Moncrief era, the casting community has seen itself diverge into two loosely linked camps, those who use it on the tournament field to demonstrate that they can, and the rest who use any subsequent developments as tools to improve their own casting from the shore. One man who's had a foot in both camps is casting expert John Holden, who joins us here today. As I understand it, your preference these days is using your casting skills down on the beach, which is something I would like to delve into a little more deeply as we go along. But before we get to that point, tell us how you first became interested and involved with the casting scene, from your earliest memories through to where we find ourselves today, in early 2013. I first got into fishing when I went with my granddad. I suppose I was three or four years old, and that was on the River Trent. Later on we moved south, and as we were near the coast we did a bit of sea fishing, but I suppose I started being fairly serious when I was about 14. But I was struck one day at uh, East Lane in Suffolk. There was a guy casting what I thought was miles and he was catching fish and no one else was. So it seemed to me that one of the things you had to do was cast reasonably well. And I suppose that's what fired my enthusiasm to learn to cast. We lived near a cow field and I bought myself a beach fishing rod. I've absolutely no idea what it was. It was, I think it was a converted tank aerial made of steel. I had an old fixed spool reel. I've no idea what it was, but anyway, I loaded it with line, tied on a six ounce weight and started to cast across the cow field. The only help I had at the time was a copy of Creel magazine, which had an article by Les Moncrief. So I was trying to do more or less what Les was doing. Eventually I got to cast as far as the width of the cow field, which was probably about 75 yards, at which point I turned through 90 degrees and started casting the length of the cow field, and that was about 100 yards, so not bad progress. So I left school and started training as a biomedical scientist, and I still kept fishing, and then one day... I suppose sometime in 1967, not quite sure about that date, uh, there was an advert in Angling Times about the Abu 484, which at the time was a revolutionary rod. That's the rod that Peter Bagnall used to cast 190-something yards with bait, and everyone thought, well, that's not possible, but 
From the tournament results, Peter showed us that it was entirely possible. Well, that got me thinking. Uh, maybe I'd like to do that. So I saved up my money and I bought an ABU 484 and I played around with it. Bought myself a multiplier reel as well. That was um, a Mitchell 602. And I had to have that because I couldn't afford the Ambassador, the little 6000 Ambassador reel that Peter was using. Anyway, I struggled away with it in my cow field, still getting about the length of the field. And I switched to a ground cast similar to what Peter was advising. And I cast and I cast and I got into one mess after another and nothing really happened. Until one day I was out practicing, I put the lead down on the ground, I cast it and it flew oh, about 130, 140 yards. And I have to tell you that I have absolutely no idea why that happened. Since that day, I've never had any great problem throwing a lead weight. Within a few months of that, I was casting all 180, 190 yards. By then, I'd contacted uh, Bill Roberts, who was a leading light in the southern tournament scene. And he was of enormous help to me. The upshot is that in, I think, 1968, I won the British Amateur Championship with 6-ounce multiplier. And the year after that, I think I won it again. And I was entering and winning a lot of other tournaments besides. So as we move into the early 1970s, I was becoming quite well established at tournament casting and doing a lot of fishing as well. My main interest has always been fishing. I don't regard casting as much more than a means of catching more fish. Now don't get me wrong on this, I really like tournament casting and I still retain an interest in it, but it needs such a huge effort to remain competitive. And in the early 1970s, I'd reached the point in my career in the NHS where I had to concentrate all my attention on getting my Institute Fellowship exams. By 1973, I more or less stopped tournament casting. By this time, I was uh, writing for some of the uh, fishing magazines, <clears throat> including Angling and the Odd Piece for Angling Times. Anyway, it... Uh, took a direction of its own really and was growing away until the time came when I really had a choice. I could continue working for the health service or I could go freelance as a writer and photographer, do some fishing and anything else that came along. And I suppose basically that's what I've been doing ever since. My long-term association has always been with Sea Angler magazine which I'm still writing for now after, what, 40 years, I suppose, uh, along with Angling Times and Angler's Mail, which I had weekly columns in for years and years. I was doing some tackle development as well. I'd really like to keep that kind of thing at arm's length. That's always been my way. But I had a good time, and my main associations have always been with American tackle companies such as Penn, Fenwick, who make the rods, they're part of the Woodstream Corporation, and also with DuPont, who make the Stren fishing line. And as a result of those contracts I had, 
I spent an awful lot of time in America during the 1980s and I was writing there for some of the magazines such as Saltwater Sportsman, doing some television work and so on. I was also asked by the British publisher Crowwood Press to write a book about casting and that was Long Distance Casting which was published in 1982 and it remains in print even though the modern version which is called Long Distance Casting 2 is an e-book. I was still casting throughout that time but uh, not competitively doing a lot of demonstrations and teaching we set up the Sea Angler casting events where people could uh, get themselves a distance badge. I think that is probably the best contribution I've made to casting and maybe to fishing as well. I'd like to see that come back, by the way. So far as my own distances were concerned, for anyone who might be interested, uh, as part of the testing of tackle and so forth, I kept uh, at it as much as I could and I was probably topping out at about the 240 yards with 0.4mm mainline, which uh, these days, if you were casting 0.35, would be about 250-255 yards. But as far as I'm concerned, that's really academic. If I can put a bait 150 or 160 yards, that's plenty far enough for me. Because as I said in the beginning, all that casting really means to me is the way to catch more fish more consistently and I think over the years that's proved itself time after time. I see so many people struggle when they are more than capable of casting just as far as I can and that's why I've always tried to concentrate on teaching and generally helping people to do as well as I can. I was very lucky that the right people and the right opportunities always seem to turn up at the right time. An awful lot of people don't have that and I can completely understand why they get so frustrated. So if I can give anyone a message it's that if you can help someone, go off and do it. Though you no longer cast for its own sake on the tournament field, many people still do. So as an angler, I have to ask what the fascination is in casting without baits and no fish. I went into tournament casting, so that required a lot of practice. But I really just liked to see the lead flying through the air as much as anything. Later on I took up archery, and I got much the same satisfaction from watching an arrow fly through the air. So there's probably something quite psychological there. Anyway, uh, it's all too easy to be distracted when you're fishing. Plus you have the problem, of course, that uh, a lot, on a lot of beaches it's quite difficult to set yourself up on a nice piece of flat ground. But to do that you can go to any secluded open space. It doesn't have to be either competitive or even on an actual field. Testing new equipment is very much easier if you're on a field. When you're developing rods and reels, um, there are a lot of tests that have to be done which don't relate directly to fishing. It's impossible to measure some of those characteristics when you're fishing, uh, not least because you can't actually get a tape measure out and see what the results are. And uh, if you're in a field, of course, you can turn around, cast the other way and thus go into the wind, with the wind or across the wind. Those are all factors in controlling a multiplier reel, for example. So I do a lot of field work just to get things right. 
really what you need when you're learning is some kind of consistency and stability and the field gives you that. The other point about casting on a field which people don't understand I think is that it's okay to get your technique into reasonable shape and that will give you a good basic cast but beyond that you're practicing for perfection if you like or at least to find out the best way that you personally can do any particular technique. And again, it's all the same situation as you'd find on the beach where you've got so many things going on and so many inconsistencies that you're better off going somewhere nice and quiet and getting on with it. There are actually people out there who tournament cast and never fish. Obviously, you don't fall into that category. But what are your thoughts on those that do? For some people, the element of competition comes into it. Tournaments were great because they gave me a chance to measure what I could do against other people, of course, and against the records. More than that, it was a personal issue. I just wanted to see how far I could cast if I really tried. Some people do it because they're competitive. I think that I'm not all that competitive. I can focus very, very strongly on something that I want to do. Some would call that competition, I suppose, but I don't really care how far anyone else casts. I want to be there when a record is cast. I'd love to see someone cast 400 yards, for example. This casting game and fishing have become part of my business life as well. And so in some respects, I don't really have much choice. The field is where I've got to be. You'd be surprised how many people throughout the world go casting and never go fishing. I met some South Africans, for example, who lived 600 miles from the sea and they were lucky to get there once a year, but they had a thriving casting club. Casting's one of those things that can get into your blood and that's the main reason that tournament casters do it. It's a very close-knit, quite competitive world where everyone has a good time just doing something they love. My focus these days is on helping people to learn to cast better and to uh, catch more fish and generally enjoy themselves. It's so much easier to teach people the finer points of casting when they're on a nice field rather than on the beach. Though I have to say that um, in just general teaching, I'd much rather be on the beach because not least it's safer. People can't go walking into the path of a lead. Can we now start to look at the casting improvement process, starting with rod choice? When you go fishing and casting, you want tackle that helps you. And in a lot of cases these days, the tackle is so highly specified that the average guy can't use it. And I see that a lot in casting lessons. People come to me who are casting, what, 70, 80 yards, and they're using a rod that's so long and so stiff that they can't put any bend into it at all. Now the very basis of good casting is that you have to be able to bend the rod into its working curve because if you don't do that you really won't get anything out of it. All you'll get is trouble. So let's work on the basis that it can be simple and from my point of view here I'm talking to the average guy on the beach. I'm not talking about tournament casting or for that matter the specialist beach fisherman who's looking for that final yard. You really do need to be realistic about this uh, tackle business and the casting as well. There's only a certain amount you can achieve on the beach and a lot of us don't have the time to do all the practice required anyway. Let's take rods as an example. 
You see an awful lot of very high spec rods these days which cost an awful lot of money. The idea of owning one of those is fantastic and at some stage that's where you're going to end up. If you're a keen fisherman you're going to have one of these super rods. Make sure you get the right one. When you start fishing you can do extremely well with a rod that costs say £100. That'll cast 120, 130 yards with baits with absolute ease. If you step up a little bit more to say £150, let's say a Daiwa Supercast for example, there's a rod capable of casting 200 yards very easily. Now here's where the realism comes in. I doubt that one angler in a thousand will ever be able to cast 200 yards. Get yourself a nice rod that doesn't cost a fortune and lets you learn to cast. You need a rod that helps you and if you're sensible in your first choice you're set to go. You'll make far more progress than if you hinder yourself with something that you just can't get any use out of. Same question again, only this time looking at reels, which are an area that both anglers and casters can do additional work to, aimed hopefully at getting a better result. I bought a new Daiwa 7HT multiplier a few weeks ago, took it out of the box, filled it with line, took off one of the side plates and just checked there was a bit of oil in the bearings and that I'd got one small brake block in the controller. It casts and it fishes perfectly well and I doubt I shall do any more to it. An awful lot of reels are just as good. Fixed spools too. You take them out of the box, fill them with line and use them and for most of us we need nothing better. On the other hand, playing around with reels is great fun and it's something I've done for decades. Used to have to do it in the first place because nothing that you bought would do the job. The small ambassador multipliers would come with a level wind, so you had to take a hacksaw, chop everything off, make your own crossbar and turn them into a CT version. These days, comes already done. Fixed spools, well, they're a kind of a mixed blessing in the shore fishing world. They are very good reels and they'll do a perfectly good job but there's this idea that somehow you're not a proper fisherman and you're certainly not a proper caster unless you use a multiplier. There's a certain logic in that but a lot of it is just preference and to an extent some bias as well and my guess is that in years to come the fixed spool may well come to dominate over the multiplier but that's another story. For general shore fishing, on the multiplier front, all you need to do is go and buy an appropriate reel. And getting the right model is probably the biggest decision you have to make. Thing is, if you're doing general fishing over fairly clean ground, you want to go for one of the small reels. And the classics there, of course, are reels such as the Daiwa 7HT I've mentioned, the Abu 6500 series, and the Akios. If you need slightly more line capacity or you're going to use thicker line or you're fishing on rough ground where you need some extra cranking power then the next step up would be the Abu 7000s. The Pen 525 series are excellent and then there's the Daiwa SLSH which have been going for donkey's years and are probably as well proven as any rough ground reel has ever been. On the fixed spools there's an awful wide choice. You can spend hardly anything or you can spend the best part of a thousand pound. 
If you're new to the shore fishing game, your best bet is to buy something fairly cheap. It will do a good job, you won't have to tune it or anything, and it'll get you into fishing and casting. Now my bet is that after a few months, especially if you become interested in casting, you'll want to switch to a multiplier. It makes sense not to have spent too much money in the first place. Save your money for the multiplier. If you're more dedicated to fixed pool fishing, and especially if you go into some of the light line options we have now, then you'll have to spend a bit more money and get something with a nice coned spool and a crisscross line lay. Those things cost money, but again, they're not exceptionally expensive. Line capacity on both of your reels, your multiplier and your fixed spool, is going to be about 0.35 millimetre. You need about 250 yards for practical fishing. The little multipliers take that amount with ease. On a fixed spool, you probably have to back it out a bit at first because the spools on some of them are very deep and way over capacity. So all you do is you get a bit of string, wind it on the spool until the level comes up to leave the right space for the line you want to put on. Then you wrap a few turns of electrical tape on top of the string to make a nice level surface and off you go. No tuning required on the fixed spool of course. No brake control either. On your CT multiplier you've got the choice of your brake blocks and magnets and a lot of reels have both. No great problems there, they both work extremely well. Let me tell you about multiplier control. Control of a multiplier is 99% down to your technique. Get your technique right and you'll quickly discover that tuning is a bit of an anticlimax. You'll do as I did with my little 7HT, put a bit of oil into the bearings, put in a brake block, or if you've got a magnetic version, dial in whatever suits you, and go ahead. That's all you have to do. If you become more specialised in your casting, whether for tournaments or for fishing, then these days you have a whole load of options to customise your reel. There's spools, bearings, side plates, magnets, all kinds of conversions, and they're all very good, and they all do add something to the cast. But they won't produce miracles. It's down to you. If you can cast well, you'll get the benefit from them. But if you're, say, stuck at 100 yards and you think, well, I need some more distance, so what I'll do is I'll get myself one of these fancy spools, tune it up, get some special oil. Well, maybe you'll get about 105 yards, or maybe you'll go down to 90, or if you've got a really quick reel, you won't be able to use it at all. In those circumstances, your best bet is to go and get a casting lesson, because a good instructor and a bit of effort on your part will turn your 100-yard cast into a 150-yard cast using the same old reel. You can uh, modify and tune fixed balls in a similar fashion, but again, you really don't need to if you're just doing fishing. One of the problems with the cheaper reels is that the line lay isn't very good, and that tends to stack it up to the front or the back of the spool. And there's a number of things you can do to improve that. But if you fill the reel with backing and you lay it on by hand, you'll produce a nice even surface and that's really all you need to do because the amount of fishing line you're going to put on there won't cause too much of an overstack front or back. As far as bearings and bail arms and all that kind of thing are concerned, well again it's largely a matter of opinion although there are of course 
different performance, different reliability according to what you buy and on the design of your reel. Years ago you had to chop off bail arms and do all sorts of things so that you could get a cast away, but nowadays it's all different and nearly everything works perfectly well. On the modification front you can make your own spools, you can do all kinds of things, but I think on the whole it's time and money wasted because for £100 or more, and of course you can run right up to that £1,000 mark I was talking about, you'll get a reel that's designed to throw offline extraordinarily well. A lot of this is due to the interest in light line casting in the Far East where these reels were manufactured. When you're using braid or anything else that's very thin, let's say um, £8 nylon or thereabouts, you need to be absolutely critical in the spool shape, the line lay, the bearings, the bail arm, everything because otherwise you're going to get a mess. So I really don't see any point in trying to reinvent the wheel. Just buy what you need and uh, stay out of the workshop. Is there anything in particular we should know about line choice? I use ordinary 0.35mm nylon for nearly all of my fishing. Over the years I've used a range of brands. used to be uh, the old Silcast. These days it's likely to be Suffix or Daiwa Tournament line. I like a brightly coloured line most of the time. Other than that, I'm not really too bothered. I like a line that sits nicely on the reel. Some of the very cheap lines, and actually the very expensive ones as well, tend to be a little bit springy, and you can get control problems on both multipliers and fixed balls. But on the whole, just an economy line is fine by me. Ordinary monofilament does the job and I rarely use the more advanced monofilaments. You get higher breaking strain for a given diameter but quite often there's a drawback to it as well. Some of them burn, some of them tend to cut more easily. Well in the old days you weren't allowed to use water lubrication on a casting field and that was no disadvantage because quite frankly I don't think it makes any difference. Out to sea, line's wet anyway. Doesn't make any difference so far as the casting's concerned, except that, obviously, it's slippery. You can get over that by using a piece of rubber between your thumb and the spool. Just the old trick with a bit of bicycle inner tube. Though recommendations regarding reels can, to a large extent, be passed from person to person, that doesn't work when it comes to the subject of rods. For while there are many models available to suit all casting styles and user physiques, because people are all physically different, finding one that completely suits each person as an individual, while it can be done, is definitely no easy task, particularly when you then add different casting techniques into the mix. So what should people be looking for in a mass market rod? You're quite right, it can be very difficult to find a decent rod. The trouble these days is that there's so many on the market that everybody's confused. What you have to consider is that if you can cast very well, your choice is going to be a lot easier because you can pick a rod up and you can know more or less whether it's going to suit you or not. And in fact, because you can cast well, you can probably do reasonably with almost anything. One or two rods will give you the best performance. And you have to bear in mind on that one that we're talking about casting and fishing. You don't want to go too far 
along the casting power route to the detriment of your fishing. You might be surprised to know that a lot of the tournament casters use a much shorter, softer rod when they're fishing. And the reason for that is that they're trying to get their baits out reasonably far and they want to enjoy their sport. If you get too much in the way of rod power, for want of a better word, everything else tends to fall apart and you end up on the beach with some dreadful monster that's an absolute pain to use. It's beginners and semi-experienced fishermen who suffer most because if you have to rely on reviews and advice from tackle dealers, you could run into trouble. Let's cut right down to the chase on this one. Nearly everybody, whether he's a non-caster or he's someone who's trying to learn a decent style, or indeed whether he's a fairly good performer already, let's say he can cast the lead about 150-160 yards. The area to look for in the rod market is what you might call the bread and butter design. It'll be 12 to 13 feet long, fairly stiff, fairly quick. It comes in all kinds of price ranges. You don't have to spend a fortune. Good rods that have come my way over the years include the Daiwa Sandstorm series, the Daiwa Supercast. If you're going to move a little bit more towards the British manufacturers, then... Coniflex and Ziplex both offer excellent fishing rods. You may have to look for them fairly carefully these days because all the top manufacturers are forced to make rods for the market, by which I mean that the trend these days is for very long, very stiff rods. And even the specialists would go out of business very quickly if they didn't make what the market wanted. If you talk to the people behind these rod designs, you'll find that a lot of them are quite disappointed in having to do that, and they'd quite like to make much better fishing rods. Probably one of the most significant rod designs of the past 10 years is the Coniflex Easy Cars. This is the last design by Mike McManus, who started the company and who is, to my mind, one of the most underrated rod designers that this country's ever produced. Mike took the view that rods had become unusable by so many people that he wanted to try and redress the balance by making a rod which in modern terms is fairly soft, fairly forgiving and above all it's one which the average guy could get hold of, learn to cast well, fish extremely well and on top of that if he wanted to practice his casting, that rod would go with him, certainly to the 200-yard mark. These are the kinds of rods that you want, sandstorms, easy casts and so on. Get yourself a rod that you can use, a decent length, and as I say, 12 to 13 foot is going to suit most people. Medium fast action, nicely built. Nearly every rod you come across these days has rings and handles which are perfectly okay. There would be no point trying to improve on that design. And to tell you the truth, a lot of it isn't critical anyway. Get yourself one of those rods and make your priority learning to use it. That is the key. If you can't cast, no rod will help you. If you can cast, you have a very wide choice. Before we look a little more closely at the mechanics of casting baits, it might perhaps help for you to give us a brief overview of the various casting styles and why you might choose one over the others. Well you have two main ways of casting, casting off the ground and casting with the lead aerialised. Each of these can be subdivided. 
With the off-ground styles, you have the Easy Cast and the South African. Of the aerialized casts, Pendulum is by far the most popular, but there are other versions such as the Tossback and the aerialized South African. One thing you really need to understand before you get into casting is that nearly all casting styles are based on the same foundation. And in turn, that foundation is determined by the structure of the human body. When you're hitting something or throwing something, you use two functions of your body. First is rotation and the other is your arm action. The principle is more or less the same whether you're hitting a golf ball, throwing a discus or casting a fishing rod. The off-ground and the pendulum stars we use on the beach work perfectly well with fixed ball reels. These days you can use both reels on the same rod and that's quite handy because sometimes it's nice to interchange. Of the casting styles in general, you can say that the off-ground styles are easier to learn. And the reason for that is that you can preset an awful lot of the cast. You can put the rod in the right place, you can lay the sinker on the ground, you can adjust the rod, you can adjust yourself. When that's done, the cast itself is pretty straightforward, it's almost automatic. Given the right setup, it's very hard not to get a good cast. The only difference with the pendulum is that instead of starting from on the ground, the lead starts from mid-air. You need to understand that if you're going to move into pendulum casting, it's really the same cast as before with a different beginning. In other words, off-ground and pendulum casting use the same engine, but they have different beginnings. The off-ground cast, particularly the easy cast style, is very easy to learn, quite adaptable, gives you excellent distances. Where it fails is on a dirty beach where you can't lay out the tackle. Here the pendulum cast is an obvious alternative. Pendulum casting is great too if you're fishing in the surf, for the obvious reason again that you can't lay the sinker on the ground before you cast. I think you'd do better to consider them as alternatives to be used as and when. Once you've learned the basic mechanics of casting, which is the rotation and arm action, then you can do whatever style you like. Can we now start to flash out the mechanics of putting both a good and equally as important, a safe full-blooded pendulum cast together? Well, the fishing pendulum cast is a technique where the sinker and the rig start their power arc from a position in midair rather than dangling under the rod or being laid on the beach. In the bigger tournament casts, the sinker swing is part of the power stroke. In other words, the sinker never stops. From the moment you start the cast, the sinker goes in a big loop and then you pick up on the power arc. In the fishing cast, all we do with the sinker is swing it back and forth to a stationary point where it hovers for a moment and then the power arc begins. This is a much easier way of doing it and it provides all the distance you need when you're fishing. Going through the basics of a pendulum cast insofar as I can describe it in words, you begin by taking up your stance and then you turn away from the water. That rotates your body into a powerful wound up position. You then swing the sinker away from you then you bring it back on the return swing which takes it somewhere high and to the right of your right shoulder. When it reaches the peak of its swing, it will stop for a moment. It will just hover and you can feel that quite distinctly. 
That's your signal to begin the power stroke, which is a combination of rotation of your body and then that progresses to a final punch and pull with your arms that drives the weight into the air. Pendulum casting is much easier to understand once you realise that there are many forms, many variations. At one extreme there's a very explosive cast which is with a very stiff rod and uses lots of leverage. And on the opposite extreme is the lazy flowing pendulum cast which is the traditional pendulum technique which started everything rolling in the late 1960s. Most pendulum techniques are a combination of both those extremes. When you get the right balance between explosion and flow, you get a cast that suits you. You might find this slightly easier to get to grips with if I explain it another way. Let's compare a sling with a catapult. A sling is all about speed. You have to whirl it around before you let go. The faster you whirl it, the further you'll get. By contrast, a catapult is very slow. You draw it back and it doesn't really matter how slowly you draw it back as long as you stretch the rubber. Because once you've done that, you've stored all the energy and then it's just a question of letting go. And generally speaking, you can throw a lot further with a catapult than you can with a sling. The modern way depends heavily on the sling effect, whereas the original fishing pendulum cast, which is also the cast that set most of the records in the 1970s and 1980s is much more of a catapult way. It's a slow moving, seems as if you're doing nothing, but the sinker goes a heck of a long way. For fishing, I've always used the catapult style. I can cast a lot easier that way and I have a much greater choice of rods. My cast seems slow and relaxed, but that's really a deception. Compare it to um, golf. You get a beginner on a driving range who's thrashing away at the ball and it goes nowhere. And then the club professional comes along and he just sweeps the ball away and it goes miles. Casting's a lot like that. So in my case, when I'm fishing, I'll be using one of the older style rods. Not necessarily an old rod, but an old style, old design rod. There aren't too many of those about these days and quite often I go back to some of my old rods. When I'm using a fairly long rod, fairly long by my standards, 13 and a half feet, for fishing in the winter with six ounces of lead, I almost always go back to the old Ziplex GS match. When I'm fishing 150 grams in normal day-to-day -day work, I'll probably go for something like a Coniflex Easy Cast, one of the original flick tips, or so far as the modern rods are concerned, I keep going back to the Diver Supercast. Rods of that nature, there's lots and lots of them around. Don't look for the model name, look for the characteristics. One or two anglers I know have bespoke distance casting rods. Ex-England International Mick McCallum, for example, had rods made to his requirements by Coniflex, though it has to be said that even these didn't always make the grade. As you've already mentioned, most off-the-shelf rods are fitted out to a very high standard. But should you always rely on the manufacturer, might it not be a good idea to buy a blank and fit it out yourself? I can't really comment on this one because I've rarely used anything but off-the-shelf rods. Way back in the old days you had to do it yourself. I made my own rods with bits and pieces cut from old fibreglass blanks, aluminium tube 
And at one point, I even used one of those old Burma canes that uh, carpets used to come on. Since decent rods came on the market, personally, I've never had to look beyond standard products. I can understand why people do like to have something tailored to them personally. On the other hand, you have to be aware that all too often people look for specialist equipment to overcome any problems they've got in their own technique. Simply put, the better you can cast, the less reliance you have on anything special in the way of rods. Tell us a bit more now about the fixtures and fittings. How, for example, might rods differ at the finishing off stage when the different casting styles are brought into the equation? It doesn't really matter these days whether you make your own rod or buy one that's ready-made. Personally, I'd much rather have something just off the shelf because I can't make a rod any better than nearly every manufacturer produces. That's so far as rings and fittings are concerned. On the other hand, there's quite a lot of satisfaction in building your own rod and you can mess around with some of your own ideas. Adds more interest and enjoyment to your fishing, I suppose. One thing I do like to do these days is find an old rod. You can find a classic blank at a car boot sale and get it for maybe 20, 25 pounds. That includes the big names, the Ziplexes and the Coniflexes. The last one I found was a GS Sport, 25 pound, looked a wreck, rings all broken, handle tatty. Blank was excellent. Strip it off, re-ring it and away you go. I take it that's a like-for-like -like swap using new quality durable fittings, with the older fittings merely acting as a guide in terms of positioning. I'm not too fussy about rod building, as long as it does the job that's fine by me, and to an extent I don't even care what it looks like. Handles? Well, I just use a couple of coaster clips, maybe a bit of rubber tape, otherwise just leave the bare blank. Fixed spool? Sometimes I put on a screw reel seat, but mostly I'll just wrap the thing on with a piece of rubber tape. Rings? Well, these days I tend to use the same rod with both fixed spools and multipliers, so I ring it accordingly. That's more or less standard multiplier ringing. I do use a movable butt ring quite often. If I'm using the reel high on the handle, the space between the reel and the butt ring will be just right. But if I shift the reel to the bottom, then the space is too much. That may or may not affect multipliers or fixed balls alike. If there is a problem with line flow, all I do is temporarily tape on a ring somewhere in that gap. I'll probably use a 30 millimeter. Tip rings, so far as I'm concerned, are a pain. If I'm going to use the rod long-term for fishing, I take off whatever's on top and I put on a stainless steel diamite from Hopkins and Holloway. Not quite sure how easy they are to get these days, but I've got a big collection of them and uh, probably got enough to last me out. They're excellent. They're a bit heavy, but you'll never wear them out. And what's more, they don't crack like some of the lined rings. So far as ring quality is concerned, I stick with the Fuji BNHGs or the Alconites. I've never bothered with the very expensive rings because, quite frankly, they make absolutely no difference to the way I fish and cast. So following on from the ringing for particular kinds of reels, uh, the whole issue of rod choice for casting style comes under the same kind of category, really, in that I'm not too bothered. 
I use those shorter rods for pendulum casting more or less exclusively. The longer rods, they'd be for pendulum with the reel down and the heavier lead and for all of the off-ground casting because I like a long and fairly soft rod for ground casting, both the easy cast and the South African style. You can come at rod design on a complicated basis if you like, but I really can't see the point of it. If there's a difference between the reels, then a fixed spool probably benefits from a slightly stiffer tip, and by tip in this case I mean the top two or three feet. A little bit more resistance there seems to give you a better pickup and a cleaner cast. All I do is avoid the flick tip for ground casting and for fixed spool work, because that tip really is too soft. But even these issues are changing because we're now seeing rods come onto the market with S-glass tips. Now S-glass is a high performance kind of fiberglass and it hasn't been generally available in this country for many years. One of the rods that has it is the Coniflex EasyCast and part of that rod's appeal to me is this S-glass. I used to use it a lot when I was uh, working in America with Fenwick. We used S-Class for nearly all the rods. Where I think we may see some big changes in the near future is with this business of braided lines. When you use very thin braids, the whole game changes to some extent. And we may need to take more of a European approach with the long, soft rods and so on. To some extent, we've already looked at line choice, though not, obviously, leaders. But before we move on to that particular subject, is there anything further worth saying about running lines, such as inherent stretch, brittleness, suppleness, or even braid versus mono? I don't really have much more to say about lines. Ordinary monofilament does me just fine, always has done. 99% of the time I shall use 0.35mm, and occasionally I'll use a light line such as 8-pound test. All of these monofilaments stretch to a certain extent. You have to live with that because if you go for a low stretch monofilament, you'll find that it lacks shock strength. Some lines are springier than others, and that can be a problem for casting, especially from a multiplier. But you don't want a dead line on a multiplier. You need just a little bit of springiness in it, just a shade, because that encourages it to come off the spool more cleanly. And the same is true of a fixed spool reel, though perhaps not to the same extent. The issue of braid versus monofilament is a big one, and it's one that could revolutionise some aspects of our beach fishing. The main thing you find when you start to use it is A, it's extraordinarily expensive, and B, it's remarkably thin. That rules it out for multiplier casting for an awful lot of people, including myself. Unless I'm using a thick braid of roughly the diameter of the 0.35mm nylon, I'm going to run into trouble. So, as far as I'm concerned, it's a fixed ball issue. Really haven't got anything more to say about it. Just use what you like and you'll get on fine. Because of the potentially explosive force behind some casts, I take it that shock leaders are an absolute necessity if the lead isn't a part company with the line, with all the potential dangers that that can bring. So shock leaders are a must. The choices, as I understand them, are straight versus tapered, number of turns on the spool, and of course what braking strain to choose. Well you're right, 
a shock leader is more or less essential for beach fishing, not only from the safety angle, but also because it's a lot more durable. But let's get one thing straight. Good casting does not involve heavy pressure on a leader. If I'm casting well, I will not break 35 pound leader. Back in the days of level line casting, we were doing 200 yards and more on 18 pound line straight through to the lead. Now the difference here is control. If you cast really well, if you put the power in progressively, the shock leader is not under any particular pressure. It's only in the more modern casts with very stiff rods, the explosive kind of hitting I talked about earlier, that you risk breaking heavy leader. In fact, I'd say that if you regularly break leader of more than 50 or 60 pound test, you should look at your casting. I've always been happy to fish with 50 or 60 pound leader. I use ordinary monofilament. I'm a little bit choosy because some brands feel different from others and most of that's to do with the stretch. I like a little bit of stretch because it makes the cast feel nice. I would never buy a tapered leader because I just don't see the point of it. But yes, they're fine. When I'm using very light lines for beach fishing, or perhaps I should say very thin lines, such as the modern braids, what I like to do is put a piece of 15 or 20 pound monofilament between the main shock leader and the main line. Typically I'd use about 10 or 15 yards. That gives me a smoother takeoff for the cast. And also if I'm using light monofill, which would have a break in strain of say, eight pound test on the reel, then I would have the 50 pound shock leader, 20 pound link, and then go down to the eight pound. The advantage apart from casting is that when I'm bringing a fish onto the beach, I've got some of that 15 or 20 pound line back onto the reel. And that gives me just that extra little bit of insurance. And what about the knot? Obviously this needs to be streamlined and strong, but it also needs to flow from the spool and through the rings easily. I use that good old traditional knot, the uni knot and half hitch. It's one that's been around for donkey's years. I'd see no reason whatsoever to change from it. And that includes with braid. It's an easy knot, it's tough, it's strong enough, and that's good enough for me. Aerodynamics are vital in achieving distance, but when you start adding in baited hooks and the like, distance is obviously going to be compromised. So what realistically can be expected on the beach with each of these casting styles and what tips can you offer to help anglers achieve these distances? Well if you're looking for distance there are a few things you need to do rig-wise. First off and often overlooked, it often pays you to use extra lead when you've got a fair sized bait on. That's one of the reasons why in cod fishing on the east coast where we use a big hook full of worms and squid and bits and pieces, we often go to six or even seven ounces of lead when we want to push that much bait into a stiff wind. Other than that, your best bet is to use a bait clip and in conjunction with your bait clip, you want some kind of stopper system that keeps the bait on the hook. I would expect to fish at 150, 160 yards as a relaxed cruising speed. Obviously your mileage is going to differ according to how well you cast. But for the average guy who's prepared to learn a decent technique and do a bit of practice, fishing at 125 yards or so is a realistic goal. And if that doesn't sound very much to you, 
bear in mind that perhaps 1% of the fishermen can actually do that. My distances are going to be about the same whether I use a ground cast or a pendulum cast or a fixed spool or a multiplier. A long rod or a short rod, it really doesn't make much difference. If I'm looking for absolute maximum distance, then maybe I'll have to look a little bit deeper into tackle. What I'd like to get across to you here is that all these things are absolutely dependent on having a good casting style. And that's the one thing that the vast majority of fishermen just don't have. Until you've addressed that issue, you are wasting your time and your money looking at the tackle angle. Learn to cast better. And once you do that, all these other questions answer themselves. Another thing that Mick McCallum said during his interview was that he invariably always uses the same flapper rig, obviously with variations on hook sizes and mono diameter, and that he never clips his bait down either, because during casting baits can get forced up off the hook and onto the snoods. His preference was for homemade bait stops. What are your observations there? Look, for 30 years or more, I used traces which today wouldn't be given a second glance. I'd tie a standoff loop about 18 inches above the lead, I'd fix a hook length to that and away I'd go. When bait clips came out, I used bait clips. Before that, I didn't care. And I can't honestly say that it's made a hell of a lot of difference to the catch rate. So as both a caster and a practical shore angler of great repute, what would be the design and layout of the terminal rig that you personally would pin your faith on? Almost all the time, I make up a very simple rig like this. On the end of the leader, I tie a strong metal link, such as the breakaway fast link. From that, I have about two feet of leader material down to the lead, which itself is on another fast link or similar. On that top link, which is the one on the end of the main leader, I clip a small swivel, and onto the swivel, I tie the hook length. If I'm using bait clips, which these days I am mostly, then the length of that hook length will be so that it fits nicely into the bait clip. If I'm buying bait clips, I'll use a breakaway imp. Otherwise, I'll make my own out of a bit of wire. For ground casting, where you can sometimes have a problem of the hook disconnecting from the bait clip when you lay the cast out, try one of the Gemini splashdown clips. They lock the baited hook into the clip, so it doesn't matter if the tackle does go slack as you're laying it out. However complicated you want to make your rigs beyond that, and I can see the point of doing it in some aspects of match fishing, then go ahead, play around and see how you get on. But from the point of view of going out and catching fish, I've always found it much better to keep it simple. The secret of fishing is the right bait in the right place at the right time. The rig you use generally doesn't make a hell of a lot of difference, so you might just as well keep it simple. To put that into some sort of context, tell us a bit now about your own personal fishing. I've been lucky enough to fish all around the world, but as far as I'm concerned, a good day out on the East Coast is as good as anything. Give me Orford Island, Alborough, Shingle Street, any one of those classic cod beaches. These beaches fish better during the winter, or at least they do as a rule. Cod, whiting, bits and pieces. I'm quite happy doing that. My top species for the winter is cod, and in the summer it would be bass, except that in my part of the world, 
bass fishing doesn't incorporate surf casting. And for me, part of the appeal of bass fishing is to be standing in the surf. So unless I can get out to Ireland or to one of the Atlantic beaches on the western side of the country, I shall just dibble around in the Blackwater estuary and see what turns up. Fishing itself has had its ups and downs over the years, and that's going to continue. So far as early 2013 is concerned, I think the prospects of the spring cod fishing are as good as they've ever been, and that follows on the back of a really excellent winter. So as far as I'm concerned, it's just a matter of going fishing and enjoying myself. I've no great expectations because I don't need to have any. Mostly it's pretty routine stuff and that's perfectly okay by me. Now and again you get a red letter day and that's something that comes out of the blue. I'm just delighted when it comes. Well if that doesn't put the fishing into some sort of laid back pressure free context, then nothing will. I suppose really, the main source of pressure, both in the casting and the fishing, comes from within, particularly in the early learning stages when it would be all so easy to part company with loads of money on all sorts of recommendations and still end up no nearer to the right result. What this interview has shown me as a boat angler, who only fishes the shore when it's too windy to go afloat, is probably something I knew deep down inside anyway, as most of us do if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, that being that there are no shortcuts to be had by digging your hand ever deeper into your pocket instead of putting the necessary hours into the learning and practising. And while some might not thank John for reminding us of all that, I'm going to say a very big thank you for spelling it out once again here and for giving us numerous practical pointers thrown in for good measure along the way. 